All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How's it going? Tall Wilkenfeld is here, and she's a um, she's a genius bass player. I don't know if you know her, but she's played with uh, Jeff Beck, Herbie Hancock. He, she's played with everybody. She's just a wizard, and she's amazing, and she's got a new record out called Love Remains. It's great. And it's available now wherever you uh, get your music. But uh, she's very young. Um, and she's just a um, a prodigy, I guess you would call it. Is that what is, is that the word? Not protege. That's the other word, prodigy. But, uh, but she's also a human. And she just has this gift. She's a gifted person. And I was uh, excited to talk to her because uh, she's been hanging around comedy clubs for a while. She likes comedy. She was always a a friend of the comics and you know she she hangs out i've played uh, music with her but uh, i used to see her around it was funny when i first saw tall when jeff ross introduced me to her I, she said she was a musician and like really in my mind i was like okay yeah not totally dismissive but uh i, I you know just a, a little bit snide and condescending i just thought another singer songwriter in los angeles turns out she's a fucking genius but uh, also, you know, outside of that, she's going to play a song at the end uh, in the garage. Now, as you know, if you listen to the show, if you listen to this part of the show, I've had to move into my house uh, to like, it's a real, you know, it's a real scene up here in this spare bedroom, I'll tell you. But uh, Tall's going to play a song. And then after that, instead of me playing my guitar noodling, we're going to play a very organized bit of business. We're going to uh, sort of do the world premiere of the song that Tal and I wrote and she produced from the new Lynn Shelton film, Sort of Trust. You'll be able to see the film eventually, but, you know, it premiered at South by Southwest, so I want to play this song. I want to play you the song that I wrote with Tal and I was in the studio. I was in the studio with the likes of Zach Ray and Tamir Barzilay and Jimmy Z Zavala, the harp player, and Doyle Bramhall and Tal and me on guitar feeling very insecure. I mean, I, you know, brutally like, yeah, I don't, I shouldn't be doing this. Just, you know, let, let Doyle do it. But uh, we did it. And the song is called New Boots. And it will be at the uh, tail end of this broadcast, if you're interested in it. It's a, it's a riff on the Bo Diddley groove. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we, we, I didn't write a symphony. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it's basically a hopped up blues number. But I did, uh, I did come up with the, progression and and oddly i i i riffed the original harmonica part which stayed the riff but uh you know the harp player he's a, a wizard that jimmy and uh he he did it he did it correctly but uh, look forward to that that's going to happen for you if you stay on board throughout the entire show also uh last year one of my guests uh was a comic i've known for a long time Vanessa Hollingshead. She was on episode 922 telling her story. It's a brutal story, but uh, but it turns out okay. And now she's uh, she's done her first Showtime comedy special, and that's airing this Saturday. And it's a great it's a great thing. It's a, she's got a hell of a tough tale uh, to tell uh, in her personal life, and she really came out she came out of it on top. She she's alive and she still works a lot. And she's funny. The show, the special, it's called Funny Women of a Certain Age. It's the first TV comedy special featuring six women all over the age of 50. 
It's hosted by Fran Drescher, and it's on Saturday night, March 23rd at 9 p.m., and our friend Vanessa is on that. And uh, congratulations to her. It's a tough road, man. It is a tough road, and I've got dates coming up, and uh, I've got one coming up this Saturday, this Saturday night at the uh, Wheeler Opera House in Aspen, Colorado. And I'm a little tweaked about it, and I'm, I'm just trying to dig into my, my guts, my, my, where the sad tugging is, and you know, figure out why am I tweaked out about it? At what point? Well, let's get into that in a minute. Let me just tell you where else I'm going to be. Boulder's sold out, but these UK dates, I think, are some are still available. The Lowry at Salford, England on April 4th. Royal Festival Hall is available April 6th in London. The Rep Theater in Birmingham, England, uh, April 8th. I think there's tickets for Vicker Street in Dublin on April 11th. There might be a few. I'm not sure. But Aspen, Colorado. Why am I tweaked out about Aspen, Colorado? It took me a while to track it because I, you know, the wheel, the, the deal is, is that, you know, it's not a normal town. It's a ski town. And um, tickets were moving okay, but they were like, don't worry about it. Everyone buys their tickets the day before, the day of, when they get off the slopes, they wonder what's going on in town. And they come out if there's something going on because it's a ski town and that's what you do. You kind of, you know, hold up up there and you go to the restaurant a couple of times. You go do a thing. But, you know, it's a laid back environment. And if, uh, if there's a big show in town, even if you don't know who the guy is, why not go? It's it's right down the street and we're here at the, in Aspen. Fine. I am not the kind of comic that has any problem performing for strangers. I, you know, I'm more than happy to have a following. I'm glad that people pay to see me. I'm not afraid of, of working for people that don't know my work. That's how I trained. That's what we do. That's what uh, the job is. You go in and you should be able to make a room full of strangers who don't know who you are laugh. That's the job. So that's not really what's bothering me. Obviously, I want to sell tickets, but then I started to realize, holy shit, I've been to Aspen a lot. And some of those times were not good times. And I, I think... Yeah, I'm no psychologist or psychiatrist, but I, I believe there are, there's a whole spectrum of PTSD. You know, obviously there's the far end of the spectrum, the, the tragic and intense cases revolving around war and assault and, uh, you know, all, all kinds of horrible things, but there's also the more mild, I think, uh, comedy specific PTSD, which is like, Did you go to that place before and just fucking tank? Did you just fucking die? Did you bomb badly? And, you know, is that stuck in your heart somewhere as a precedent? There's that kind of PTSD. And that, that I I think I got a little of that. I think I got a little of that in Aspen. This is also a a big pitch for my show. If you're in Aspen, (laughs) you might, you might want to come see if I can, you know, pull myself out of the personal swamp of past trauma uh, and uh, and rise to the occasion, which I will. I know I will, but I did have to feel like, yeah, I did, I did have to sort of dig a little deep to figure out why, uh, you know, my, my, my chest is tightening over the idea of it. Every time I've gone up there back in the day was a struggle, man, was a struggle because it used to be, the uh, HBO Aspen Comedy Festival. It was the biggest festival that you could be invited to. 
And the first year I went there, I was a, a you know a, a guy holding a mic for Comedy Central. I did a couple of sets, and I was younger, and I just like you know the 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 places were filled with about a third of the people were in show business, a, th- a third of the people were locals, another third of the folks were just ski people. I psyched myself out. That was the first year. And then the next year I went back with Jerusalem syndrome. So I'm doing a one man show at a comedy festival. I was used to doing it, you know, in a theater with lights and cues and everything. And I didn't have them. And again, third of the people show business, some locals, some ski people watching me do this Jerusalem syndrome. It went okay, but there was nothing relaxed about it. And I think that same year, that was the year that, uh, you know, that alternative comedy or what we were calling alternative comedy was very popular or it was at least a thing. And Comedy Central did a special called um, Kicking Aspen. That night in that room, and I believe it's the same fucking room that I'm going to play on Saturday, the Wheeler Opera House where we shot Kicking Aspen or as my friend, uh, my old friend Ross Broccoli said, uh, Dragging Aspen. I remember exactly the decisions I made and and how it went. I was doing, you know, shows at the Luna Lounge in New York. I was doing story-driven stand-up, which I still do, but I'm good at it now. And uh you, you know, it, you know, in my mind at that time, it didn't have to be punchline efficient. Uh, you, you know, you just had to lock in and you know, be carried by the tail and get the laughs where they came and you know, I chose this uh, these longer pieces that I loved that looked good on paper, but I went out there and um, just ate it. I mean, nothing. I, there is a silence when you're bombing that is inexplicable. There's almost like a vacuum to it. These jokes are just going out and they just land, not even with a thud. They just they they sort of get sucked into a silence that is simultaneously with each beat that is supposed to get a laugh as it gets sucked into the silence some sort of weird circuitous energy comes and starts just crushing your heart from the inside with each joke that goes out into the ether and just gets sucked in and what comes back is this this clinching in your chest in your heart and you're like ah another one didn't work yeah, sometimes you know, if you get good enough at the thing, you know, after years of experience, you can sort of unfuck yourself from a bomb in motion by, uh, you know, drawing attention to it or changing direction. You know, when you don't have the skill set to either absorb a failure like that or, or worm your way out of it through charm or, or diversion, all you know is that it's happening and it's going to keep happening and you're in it. And it's not going to stop and you're just going to have to ride it out. It's almost like some part of your your personality just shuts down and you're just up there and you feel it. There's no lonelier feeling, I think, really, in my experience. But I'm, I'm willing to bet in a lot of people's experience and to be in front of a crowd and you're there to get laughs and you're not getting none. You're getting the opposite which isn't, um, as you would think, uh, booze. It's just the, the sort of vacuum of silence. But maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just, it's just part of the job, folks. Just part of the job. But I think perhaps 
That's one of the reasons I'm a little tweaked about going to Aspen. But there is the possibility of victory. There is the possibility I'll go. And, you know, these last 15 years, I've learned something and it'll be fine, which I'm sure it will. It might even be great. But uh, somewhere lodged in the back of my brain, not so much the back, seems to be right up front or, you know, in one of the chambers of my heart is me standing on that stage getting nothing, getting nothing. So, yeah, so that's one of the things nagging me. And then I had this other realization, you, you know, it's not nagging me, but, you, you know, I, I oh God, can't I just let myself be happy? Huh? Can't I just let myself do it? God damn it. There's, there's no reason not to be. And I started thinking about this show, about my own capacity for relationship, for intimacy. Like you, you guys listen to this show. I honestly talk openly more openly about myself and my heart in a way that is embracing and open and vulnerable and candid with people that come in here and i'm not going to see them again but i started thinking about who i was when i was a kid yeah and this is like i don't know if i don't i wouldn't put this in the the ptsd spectrum but but it's a weird thing when i was younger you know i was a funny kid so I kind of had a sort of, uh, I, I kind of floated, you know, in between different cliques in high school because I, you know, I, I, I wasn't identified with any one clique and I sort of had a, a sense of humor. But there were times where the other thing about having a sense of humor and being an oddball is just that, you know, you want to hang out with the cool kids, whoever the hell they are. And, you know, you watch enough after school specials, you realize maybe they're not so cool. Or you grow up and you realize you know, no one's that cool, and especially not in high school or junior high. But, but there is this idea that you know you want to be one of them and you hang out with them. So I would you know make them laugh and talk to them and you know try to be their friends. And then I you know you'd hang out with them for once, and then you just wonder if you're ever going to hang out with them again, or you know why they why they didn't call you back, or how how come they don't want to hang out with you anymore. And I wonder if there's some part of me, a little a little part of my heart. That, 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 you know, just keeps, you know, reopening that wound every time I have someone over. But of course not, because, you know, I, you know, I have a place in this business and, um, you know, I, I'm not saying I want to hang out necessarily with everybody that comes in here, but I've definitely had some pretty amazing people in here. And I think there must be part of me that thinks like, you know, why, why can't I be friends with them? And then they, they come and we talk and I'm like, that was fun hanging out. Can we, we're not, well, I'm never going to talk to you again unless I run into you at a show of some kind. We're not going to be friends. And I wonder if there's a, just a little, a little touch of heartbreak, you know, after everybody I talk to individually leaves my home. I wonder if it's down there. I wonder if I'm overthinking this. So tall, tall Wilkenfeld. The wizard, the bass wizard. Uh, she's amazing. And, you know, as I said earlier, I met her at the comedy store. And, uh, you know, we have since played together a couple times. And uh, we played a song together that you can hear at the end of this, a song we wrote together and played with a group of musicians. Uh, she has a new record out. It's called Love Remains. It's her new album. It's available now wherever you get your music. And this is um, me and Tal having a, a nice, uh, nice chat. Enjoy it. So let's go back because I got to understand some things. I was a little insecure about you coming over. <laughs> Why insecure? 
Because, I mean, like, look at my setup. Like, you, you're in studios all the time, and I've got this rinky-dink setup. I can't even hook up my guitar pedals properly. Mm. When I, I, You know, you've played with a lot of amazing musicians, myself being one of them. Of course. Uh, me, Jeff Beck, Herbie <laughs> Hancock. I'm glad to be part of that list. Um, but when I worked with you in the studio, it was like sort of, I knew nothing and you knew everything. So like I do sound, you know, but I just do talk sound, but I was still like, you know, you're a professional. Right. Well, you're, over. you're a, a professional conversationalist. I know. I know. Yeah. So I'm completely a fish out of water here. Yeah. But so uh, we're even now. <laughs> okay, fine. So you, like you grew up where? Sydney. In Sydney, in the city. I'm still growing up, but. Big city, but you're yeah. no you're no child. No, I you mean, look like you're of. you look like a child, but mm-hmm. you're not you're not a kid. No, I just mean I. Yeah, I know. Well, to always evolve. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I listen to the record. You seem to be wrestling with some things. <laughs> <laughs> you got you having a you having a rough go at the emotional business. <laughs> Did you right? Oh. I don't know. Come on. <laughs> you, uh, clearly, you got... Like, I've talked to songwriters before, and I always assume they're writing about themselves, and most of them tell me they're not, but this seems like a personal record. Like, you're writing from your point of view. You're not making up fictional characters' voices. Mm. I'd say, like... I can't say, like, 100% or 0%. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's varying degrees for each song. Yeah? Like, yeah. Like, it, it may start off, like with an experience in my life and then as I start writing the song I'll adapt it to a story that best fits the concept of what I'm trying to say. Oh right. And or it could happen the other way around I might watch a movie and be inspired to write a song based off of that narrative. Right. And then it comes sort of uh, I find a way for it to seep into uh, one of my experiences that i've had in the past right you know so it's like a a melting pot of experiences did that happen did you see a movie and write a song that was many times really yeah like what movies Uh, i watch like a lot of old classics yeah like which 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 old classic movie launched a song i i don't remember now because i I do it often Uh, wait you just watch part of a movie or watch the whole movie actually uh, i have a habit of like turning on a movie and watching it for 20 minutes pressing pause and writing right really yeah no i do it all the time and it's just the dialogue or the situation or it could be either of those things or it could be just visually what i'm seeing or how it emotionally you know stimulates me but you can't remember any of the movies i mean i remember some of them but i don't i couldn't say like oh it was definitely taxi driver that made me write right okay so and so song but like, that was an inspirational one i love taxi driver sure who doesn't love taxi yeah. driver but like, what are you going to write a love song <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I think I did write a few. <laughs> a failed love songs. Failed love songs inspired by Travis Bickle's <laughs> journeys through life. <laughs> well, that's sweet. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure Scorsese and Paul Schrader and De Niro would be happy to ins- to know that they've inspired some love songs. <laughs> that was probably part of their intention. Sydney, Australia, I've been to. I went to uh, uh, Bondi. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Bondi Beach. I swam in the ocean pool. In that pool that's right on the beach? Yeah. Yeah. That was nice. Cool. Did you swim there? Yeah, when I was a kid. But only when you were a kid? Yeah. Is that, but it's like ocean water, right? Mm-hmm. It's nice. You know, I when I was about, I guess, 13, 14, it's when I, I started getting into like figuring out yeah. what my passion was. Right. And I was definitely into sports 
well before I was into music. So I only when you were a kid? Up, yeah, well, I only picked up guitar at 14. Well, let's see. So you have brothers and sisters? No. no. You're only child. I'm an only child. Of the, of the Sydney... Uh, uh, the, the Sidney Wilkenfelds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're Jewish. Mm-hmm. Is there a big Jewish community there? Yeah. Did you grow up in a Jewy? Yeah. You did? Pretty much. Like how Jewy? Like um, um like uh, like week we go to show <laughs> weekly or not the twice a year like the rest of us? Um I ended up being somewhere in the middle. Uh-huh. You know? But your family's religious? Uh my grandparents are. And they're in Sydney were, as well? We're religious. Um, yes. Or they were. How did the how did the uh, the Jews of uh, Sydney end up there? How did they're there for many generations? Like, um, I mean, there's a there's a huge South African community yeah. that came over in the 90s after what happened there, and there's um, which which what happened? Like, you're, yeah, which, there's which a one? lot of. The, <laughs> um, then there's a lot of people that came from Europe. Like right. my, all my grandparents, all four of them are from, from but they Eastern were, Europe. Oh, okay. So that was one of the sort of like, let's get the fuck out of here. Mm. We'll go to Australia. So you're like, so they, your grandparents moved there from Europe or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So they made a choice to go to Australia as opposed to America. Yeah. Or anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. Australia's a weird place to go kind of, but I guess they were like, it's wide open <laughs> and there's no Nazis there. Let's go there. Uh, my grandpa's a Holocaust survivor. So. Really? Yeah. He escaped when he was 12. From a camp? <clears throat> well, just... right before um, his, everybody else, like his um, mom and, yeah. and siblings were taken to camps. He escaped right before. Oh, and, my God. And um, How did he do it? Ran, ran with a bunch of friends for many months. Oh, wow. And uh, I mean, he has a whole story that's fascinating, and and he he's one of my biggest inspirations. Is like, he around still? He actually just passed away during the making of this album. Oh. I actually dedicated my album to um, my family members because yeah. both of my grandparents passed away, and uh, and also a lot of good friends of mine. So they all passed away. Yeah, in the past few years, I've lost a lot of people in my life. Like, really? Like about 20. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, your grandparents, you know, you kind of understand. They, they're they going to go. Yeah. It's just, just strange timing to lose a lot of people. When you're doing a record. Yeah, quickly. Yeah. That's how I got into comedy. Was? Was like just losing a lot of friends suddenly. Yeah. And uh, one of my friends suggested that... I go and see some live comedy. In where you were here? Yeah. Uh-huh. This was only a couple years ago. And that's when he started showing up at the store? Yeah. How did your grandfather inspire this record in sense, in his story? Well, it, it wasn't so much that he inspired this record. It was that he he bought me my first guitar, oh, firstly, yeah? when I was 14. And when I was 16, and I told my parents, hey, I'm, I want to leave Australia and go to America, you know, as, as some parents would feel nervous. Yeah. Uh, my, I looked at my grandpa and he's like, and I said, you, you've been on your own <laughs> since you were 12 and you've, you're, you've inspired me to be independent and take care of myself and this is what I want to do. And he gave me the thumbs up. He did? Said, go ahead. Uh. Go ahead. How old was he when he did that? Like 80? 
yeah, maybe 70-something. Wow. So he was the one guy? Your parents were nervous, but he was like, go for it? One of my parents was more nervous than the other, but I, I think that, um, I mean, all's good now. Well, yeah. I was I mean, so it's, young. It's like, a normal reaction yeah, when, you're, you know, when your daughter- 16-year-old girl. Your only daughter, your only child wants to run away to America in a, with a guitar bag. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But before that, you were you were just what playing soccer and stuff. I mean, I was playing like uh, touch football. Mm-hmm. Um, I was into watching rugby. Yeah, um, I was really into long distance running. Like, you did that? Obsessed with long distance running. You used to do that? Yeah. Do you run now? Um, like in the gym. Right. But... That's what I mean. But you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like it was a thing for me before, like before music, running was my thing. That that was your goal. You were going to be a runner. Yeah, there was like I remember doing these really long distance runs, and there was especially like one competition that was, you know, I think it was like five yeah. mile or whatever. It was a really long run, yeah. and there was one girl that I was like. <laughs> I just need to beat this one girl because apparently she was the best, right? Right. And so I went and uh, I did this long run and and I beat her. Oh, good. And as Thank a result, God. I went and like, I was so excited. I was celebrating and, and, and jumping up and down and I, I hurt my back. <laughs> so I, I, I couldn't run for a few weeks. Because of your celebratory dance? Right. So I was like, what am I going to do now? And I'm walking or hobbling along in my school and... And I see a guitar hanging in one of the rooms. Yeah. You'd never played one before. No. I'd never even seen anybody play a guitar. Come on. How old were you? 14. And you'd never seen someone play a guitar? Never. Were you being held in a basement? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't really grow up with music or TV. Like, it was in a very sheltered situation. No TV? Um, I mean, I wasn't really allowed to watch TV because, you know... Well, my my parents have been divorced since I was two years old. Okay. So I, didn't, I only really grew up with my mom. Okay. And my grandparents. Okay. Like they both kind of right. raised me, uh, go but, back and forth. But and you so. knew your dad. He was around. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, and my mom was just really into academia. Okay. Like she wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Was she in academia? No, not really. Okay. And so like. I asked over and over if I could play guitar, and it was I got a no many many times. Huh. This was after I'd like walked past a guitar at the school. Not before that, just after. N- you, you no, were, no. Once I saw yeah. it, because I, I had my eye on it, and I and I actually grabbed it. I picked it up, and I somehow played a chord, and and tears started rolling down my really? face, and I started writing a song, and I was I felt like it wasn't me even playing it really it was really spiritual you played a chord yeah do you know do you, in retrospect do you know what chord it was i don't or know how did you figure out I, a chord I, I, you, I you're saying this was some sort of divine intervention <laughs> it it felt like that it did it really did yeah and i i went home and i can i play can i play and eventually the, the agreement was okay you can play only after you do all your homework and maybe you'll do be allowed to play for half an hour a day. Yeah. Like only if you do the, the, the it's like, okay, okay, sure, sure. So, so when did you get the and guitar? When did your grandfather get weeks it? Weeks later, oh, okay. I got I got one. You told your grandfather you wanted one? Yeah. And he gave you one? Yeah. He what got kind one. was it? It was like, it was like a package for like, you know, maybe $150 and you got like a really cheap 
Fender Squire or something yeah. like that with uh oh, came with the amp with the, with the amp and strap and yeah, yeah, kicks yeah. or right, something. Sure. It was yeah. Oh yeah. Boggin. Yeah, sure. Um like a Stratocaster style? Sorta, of, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh I bought that same package for my niece. Oh nice. Yeah. <laughs> so I I guess what that did was you know, when you when you have that kind of restriction, like you're yeah. about to play half an hour a day, it, it incentivized me to teach myself how to learn quickly and absorb information fast. And it also taught me how to practice in my head without an instrument. Mm. So even though I only had an instrument in my hand for half an hour a day, I, I'd be playing in my head all the time. So were you, how were you, you, you so you didn't take any lessons? I did. I there was a teacher at the school, and I that was part of my request. Was like, can I have lessons? Oh, okay. Yeah, Um, and and he's like, well, the first thing, like, he showed me a few chords, right? Um, And uh, there was another girl that started at the same time as me. Yeah, and uh, (laughs) I guess she 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 quit like four weeks later because she was upset with my progress compared to her. She was comparing our progress. Wasn't that girl you beat in the race? Was it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, that would have been amazing. <laughs> she, I don't think she could take another hit, really. And who knows what would have happened with your excitement of beating her. You <laughs> might have lost a hand. <laughs> so so he's like, well, you, you know, you've learned these chords really fast. Yeah. Why don't you go and go and teach yourself the solo to Stairway to Heaven? Without have pick had, without having picked any solos before, he said, "Go try that." Yeah, just just so he was he was seeing he was testing whether or not you were like a wizard. Maybe I don't know. I've been playing for maybe three weeks or something. And did you point. figure it out? Yeah, <laughs> and then like maybe a couple weeks after that, he's like, "Can I can I study with you?" No, I swear it was really funny. Well, well, well but did he? Did you teach him? What were you going to teach him? I don't know. Did you? Did he study with you? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> but it was flattering. It was cute. So you've impressed the teacher and he's, he's qu- he quit too. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you scared one girl out of musicianship and you made the teacher quit. <laughs> Good job. You're winning. All right. So then what happens? How do you, how do you pro- proceed from there? At 14, um, you, you... Well, it was like I was technically like 14 and a half. So I guess like I started, you know, writing songs and there was a, a jazz band that I'd I joined and I started there was never any guitar in the the jazz band prior but I begged I said like I'll play like you know uh, Freddie Green style or whatever just like chunk chunk and so I did that for a little while but wait but where were you learning the chords exactly like did you have a book did you just like did they just uh, did you just hear them but like I it mean it was like like chord charts, the like chord charts. Yeah. Okay, right. So you could see uh, the little picture. Uh-huh. And could you read music yet? No. Uh huh. Not really. I mean, I could kind of figure. I could figure it out. Not in re- not like sight read, but I could read notes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So you're playing in a jazz band at 14 and a half with like uh, <laughs> you know, just the you know uh, other school kids. A few a few lessons under your belt. Yeah. And you're just like you, you can just do it. A little bit. A little bit. I mean, yeah. I. I guess it's sort little. of. It's sort of embarrassing because I don't really know how it exactly happened. It, it happened fast. It, it was just happening. Yeah. You were like, I can hear this. I can feel this. I can do this. Yeah. What what jazz numbers were the, was the? Uh, it was just all like big band 
songs. I don't even right. remember the songs. Yeah. But do you like junior high big band songs? <laughs> I guess. And then I started like, um, you know, because I hadn't heard much music yet. Like I really only had three CDs. That Was there no radio in Australia? I like, I literally like, <laughs> I mean. It wasn't part of your life. It Unfortunately, no. But that's what you're you're telling me. It wasn't so much that you were there was no one you were. There was no one encouraging me to listen to music. It didn't or interest you. There was no no. It interested me before. Before you started playing, you know, like because you're, you're making it sound like it's just like music was this alien thing. All in the, it kind of was like uh, no. Before I was just into running. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you can only handle one thing at a time. Maybe. Actually, that's probably very true about me. Yeah. All your energy goes into the one thing. <laughs> right? Kind of. Kind right. of does. I get it. Yeah. yeah. So it just wasn't part of your I life. I do get really mono-focused on something that I'm interested in doing. So that's, well, that's sort of fascinating. So once you, you kind of break open to this other plane, which is music, your head's sort of like just a sponge. And you have a, a proclivity for it, so you just wanted to get as much in as possible. Yeah, and I the three CDs that I had yeah. was Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced? Yeah. And a, a Herbie Hancock album. Which one? Thrust. Uh-huh. And then Rage Against the Machine, Evil Empire. Sure. So it was a, a very eclectic- It's like all you need. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you think about those three yeah. artists and what I sound like, it kind of sort of makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I could definitely see that. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd heard Hendrix, you right. know. Um, and and that's, that, that's a good even if wide you, range yeah. of, of him. Even if you are, like, on a desert island and yeah. never hear music and someone just plays you Herbie Hancock and Jimi, Jimi Hendrix and Rage Against the Machine, give you quite a big vocabulary. Yeah. You know? I guess so. So, so those are your records. So you're learning all those songs too, I imagine. Once you, I never really like learned songs. Mm. Like besides, like me the, neither. The That's chord, where you and I have the, something in the common. The chord charts. Yeah. Like, I I'll learn them if someone tells me I need to learn a song for a particular purpose. But like, yeah. it was never part of my practice to like learn songs. Yeah. What was your practice? Just a riff and. It was yeah. just to like like play along with something, and I yeah. like you know improvise right. on it. Yeah. Or make up my own stuff. So you do the jazz band thing, and you've got your three CDs, and you're playing some big band music. And so who starts to turn you on to other music? When do you start to, like, at 14, 14 and a half, or 15, what other stuff are you putting into your head other than those three CDs? There wasn't much. Hmm. There were a few people listening to bands like Incubus and Tool. Sure. Um, ben Harper, those, mm -hmm. th they were popular, like all the bands coming out of the 90s, Linkin Park yeah. was another one. But basically until I left home at 16, that's all I'd heard. I hadn't heard it. Ben Harper, Linkin Park, <laughs> Tool, and Incubus. Uh, Hendrix, Incubus, Herbie Hancock, Jimi Hendrix, and... Uh, and uh, Rage Against the Machine. Uh -huh. That's what. That's and what... and my grandparents, like when I was a kid, yeah. Uh, basically, the only music that was played was classical or like really old school, like jazz, uh -huh. like big band, yeah, or not even bebop actually, just like big band jazz by my grandparents on my mom's side, like Artie Shaw, Stan Kelton. I don't even know what they were playing because okay. it, was, it was only literally from the car ride. From home to school, that would be the only time I'd ever hear music for but like twenty minutes. Full jazz orchestra. Yeah. Uh huh. And then, 
And then on my dad's side, it would be like classical, like Vivaldi. And oh, yeah. Mozart and stuff like That's that. That's not bad. So, so basic. So I had classical since I was really young. Yeah. And, and now, like, uh, my family tell tell me that like when I was like three and I heard Vivaldi, I yeah. was like singing along and tapping along, and, and I were, looked really musical. Like, and then they were like, "We got to put a stop to that. <laughs> 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 got to nip that in the bud right now, or we're gonna lose that kid." <laughs> <laughs> they just stifled it out of the gate. Now, after a huge success as a musician, they're like, we got to tell you something. We knew you were going to be great when you were three, but we tried to really stop that. So at 16, though, were you were you pissed off at them? Were you like, oh, fuck you guys, I'm leaving? Or was it more like, you know, I really need to do this? Was it, it must um, be hard to be the only kid and have to say that to them, no? Well- Again, like my, I I didn't really grow up with my dad, but I sort of, we started like hanging out when I was about fourteen. Yeah. Again, because I I'd started playing guitar and he was like, he was super like inspired by that. Oh really? So he dug it. Yeah, he loved it. Yeah. I because I was so uh, driven to do this. Yeah. Like I didn't want to listen to what anybody else had to say about it or how they felt about it. I was, was pretty. uh, determined uh-huh so you know it was it was tense but after like a few years and they started seeing that i could actually have a career yeah as a musician everything kind of settled back down right but, but it, like it was definitely tense but where'd you get the bread to to make the journey and well, did they... i got a scholarship at a music school basically like when i told my dad yeah. that i had started guitar he's like yeah I heard about this music school in America. You should check it out. Which one? It's called Llama. Uh-huh. It, it was like, a, it's like a guitar school. Yeah. And then one of the teachers just coincidentally happened to come to Australia. Yeah. And it worked out so that I could get a scholarship to this school. You met the guy? Yeah. How'd you meet? Like, who set that up? The, I went the with teacher. You scared away. I went with my dad. Oh, yeah. Oh, you set up an appointment, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh huh. And you sat with him in the guitar. No, I just met him. That and was then, it. And then we set up another appointment. Where you played? Yeah. But you sat there. It was with like your, a lifetime with your, your little squire, <laughs> and you did your business. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, "Holy shit, you're you're in." I got in. Yeah. Oh, but, so and then I and then I didn't. I didn't go to class that much because basically once I moved to America, I started practicing from, I went from half an hour a day to like six hours a day. Oh, and then the whole thing just opened up. <laughs> well, well, no, actually I hurt my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I gave myself tendinitis. So you moved in, so, so they felt a little more secure when you moved here because you're going to school. Did you have a sponsor? Did you have some place to live? Did they, you know, like how did that work? Or did they just say- No, they leave? have had these- uh, places where you where everyone lived oh like dormitory this, yeah sort of sort yeah. of was where was the school in new york uh pasadena oh was that here yeah okay it was in la yeah i moved to la first okay you never uh, you never went to new york i did go to new york oh but you moved here first to go to llama yeah in pasadena yeah because you met the teacher in sydney yeah and he was impressed yeah and you get here and you within months you're like this is bullshit <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna play in my room 
Well, no, actually, it was it wasn't that. It was like I want to practice for six hours a day, and I did that for maybe a week, and I hurt my hand, so yeah. I had to stop playing. Oh man! Yeah, you quit guitar. Well, I I had to stop. It hurt that much. Well, the doctor said, like, if you want to get better, you gotta you gotta stop playing for a few months. So a few months. So a few months. So it's like, what am I gonna do for a few months? Now I'm like in America. Yeah. Like, and I can't really play. So Pasadena. what am I gonna do? <clears throat> yeah. So I started like going into the drum labs and playing drums with one hand and like, uh-huh. you know, just every time I saw a bass, I would kind of, you know, slap on it like with my, with my right hand because my left was kind of yeah. hurting. And and I and it was in that period that I decided, you know what, when I stop playing again, I think I want to be a bass player. Because everyone was looking at me like, she's a bass player. Look at her. Look at her. Look how rhythmic she is on the drums. And yeah. she's slapping the bass. She, she's even slapping the guitar. You know, she was going for the rhythmic stuff. Like, I could solo and stuff. Yeah. But I, I just was into groove. Yeah. And so that's when I switched to the bass at the, 17. The tendonitis yeah. period. <laughs> Thank God for tendonitis. <laughs> Forced you to get to, to what you really wanted to do. I guess, yeah. So you, 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 get, you get better, and then you're a bass player. Right. You got rid of the squire. <laughs> Let that go. <laughs> and you went out and got, what was the first bass you got? I actually had, it was some variation on, yeah. on a Fender. Then a few months later, I got a music man. Yeah which I liked. And then I switched again because I went to uh, this thing called the NAMM show. Oh, you know the yeah, NAMM show. right. And I was playing at one of the booths and turned out to be Roger Sadowski's booth, mm-hmm. who I don't know if you're familiar with Sadowski. Is I'll just pretend like I am. Okay, good. Yeah. He's a bass guy? Yeah. Uh-huh. He makes, he's a luthier. Uh-huh. And, and he saw me play and he ended up helping me get an instrument for a lower cost because uh-huh. such amazing instruments. Yeah, but he and, wanted you to have he, one. Yeah, he was very supportive of yeah. me from, from a young age. Yeah. So that, and that's when I started playing Sadowski, and, and I played st- strictly that one Sadowski for about 10 years. So this is at 17 or 18 where you do? you 17, yeah. You're 17 when you're at the NAMM show? Yeah. And you impress the Sadowski fella? Yeah. Yeah, the, it seems like you just show up places and old men are like, holy shit. <laughs> let, me, let me make sure this this young woman does whatever she needs to do <laughs> to to follow her talent. Good for her. That's good, right? I guess, yeah. So, okay, so you got now you got a Sadowski bass. You're mm-hmm. well-equipped. Mm-hmm. And then when do you start playing with people? Okay. Um, what happens at the school? You just disappear? You, <laughs> you're like... Well, that girl went here for a little while, and then she was hanging around the drum room, and then she, we never saw her again. Basically, what happened was the, a phone call came into the school. Mm-hmm. This is after I'd been playing for a couple months. The bass. Playing bass for a couple yeah. months. And they said, there's a drummer by the name of Vito Reza coming to the school, and we need you to select your, your best bass player and guitar player to accompany him because he can't bring a band. Was he coming to do a clinic or a something? Clinic, or yeah, something. yeah. And so they asked me, right, their their best bass player <laughs> who's been playing for three months, <laughs> like yeah. two, yeah, and a guitar player, yeah, a really great guitar player. And I had started writing like really pretty complicated songs with like time signature changes and all kind. I was, I very quickly got into like sort of fusion music yeah. because when you're in a music school, like the focus is like to to become 
great on your instrument. Yeah. You know, I was just focused on that and that kind of music, jazz and fusion, like you need to have chops to play it. Like Herbie and like Weather Report or like... What yeah, those are examples. Of, yeah. yeah. Or were you just making it up? Well, I made a lot up. Yeah. yeah. But I, I... But that was the area. Yeah. Because it allowed you to be instrumental and not sort of adhere to sort of boring pop or rock structure. <laughs> I suppose. I mean, I didn't find the other stuff boring. I just wanted to explore my instrument more. Right. So... It's just like a different avenue. Well, that's what I think that's that's what fusion is all about. <laughs> it's like we've got jazz. Why don't we muffle that and ruin it a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing that. So, so yeah. So the guy comes. Of, yeah, and I I start writing uh, these strange songs. Yeah. So he's like, well, let's just let's do one of your songs and uh, and we can play like a a jazz jazz blues or whatever. Uh huh. And uh, maybe we played a third. There's the drummer. What's his name? Vito. Uh-huh. Turns out he's best friends with Vinnie Colaiuta. Do you know who that is? From Frank Zappa's band? Yeah. He's, yeah. That's where he started. He's a drummer as well? He's a drummer. Yeah. Yeah. And so... What happens what, at the gig? Let's play some of your songs and do some jazz blues. Yeah. So we play the gig. Yeah. And at the end of the gig, he... He and I already knew who Vinnie Colaiuta was yeah. because I, I'd heard some of this fusion music that was going around the school that everyone was freaking out about, and some people were calling me Mini Vinny because I was playing kind of polyrhythmic drum stuff on my bass. Uh huh. And I I I heard some of this stuff anyway. So who, what band so, was it? Who, what, uh, um, there was one project he did called Charisma. Uh huh. And just some other random yeah. things that he played on. Because, like, all the drummers were obsessed with him. Right. So, so Vito, at the end of the show, he's like, come on, come on. And he, like, dragging me, like, towards Vinny. Oh, who was at the thing? Yeah. And he's like, uh, you got to meet this girl. You got to meet. And and I was, like, really, really shy. At the yeah. Time. I was, like, 17 and, like, you know, just just really shy. I'd <laughs> right. never met, like, a professional musician. I mean, this was all just starting to happen. Yeah. And I'm meeting Vidi Kaliuta, who's like everyone's like every drummer's idol. Yeah. And I was like, All right, nice to meet you. Uh, and he's like, well, how long have you been playing? And I was like, two and a half months. And he's like, well, uh, we, we should play sometime. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we should. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Um, but then a few months after that, I decided when I, because I, I heard Wayne Krantz, who's another, like one of my favorite guitarists uh, in in especially in that in jo- that genre yeah um and i and he was in new york and there was a lot of great jazz happening in new york and so i decided i want to move to new york i'm done with la <laughs> yeah because um, wayne krantz was there because wayne krantz was there and yeah. anthony jackson was playing bass with wayne krantz who you know is anthony jackson's one of the greatest bass players ever uh-huh. and i just wanted to be around that i wanted yeah. to be around like the live jazz yeah. scene and all my heroes had had done that same thing of like going around to five clubs a night and who were your heroes well like charlie parker okay you right. know so you'd done Monk. some you'd been being doing some reading and listening since yeah. you were 14 you know getting up <laughs> all to in speed. these first few months of yeah. being in america i'm like being like saturated in all this like yeah. mainly jazz and fusion music because of that school probably and the people that yeah, were there exactly yeah. all the students 
So I moved to, to New York and I go every Thursday night to watch Wayne Krantz play with his band, which, you know, Anthony Jackson was playing with him a lot. And sometimes like Keith Carlock was playing drums and there were different musicians that were circulating. Tim yeah. Lefebvre sometimes played bass. There's a whole variety of musicians. And, uh, you know, I started to become a little less shy because I was pretty shy right. when I was in uh, L.A. So unshy enough to go up to Wayne Krantz and, and Anthony Jackson and, and introduce myself. Well, they must have seen you hanging around. I guess. Yeah. But then And then Anthony Jackson said to me, oh, I've heard of you. Uh, Lee Rittenauer in L.A., he told me about you. And I'm thinking, how did Lee Rittenauer hear? Like, the guitar player. Yeah, I don't yeah. even know how he heard about me. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> but I've heard about you. I've heard very good things. And and I started gigging like, you know, I wanted to, like, you know, two, three gigs a night, just as much as possible all with the who? time. Any band I could find to play that would let me play with them. Like, you know? who were they, some of them? R- random. I don't even uh, remember any of their names now. You were just sort of a jazz bass player for hire in New York. Yeah, but it wasn't even jazz music. It was every kind of yeah. music that was going on in New York. So just, anyone who needed a bass player and they didn't want there. a tour necessarily, you'd yeah. sit in and do it. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. Yeah. I was so starting you, to make a living as as a musician. Yeah. Like instantly. And What happened with Andy Jackson? So then he started showing up to like every one of my gigs and sitting in the front row. <laughs> yeah. And like, I'm sure other people were like, oh my God, that Anthony Jackson's sitting Why in the front he, row. Was he just trying to fuck with your head? I th- he was trying to show me support. Like, oh, good. It was kind of like a mentorship. Isn't, it, isn't that weird how I always assume? It's like, what's he doing? <laughs> Must have made you nervous. No. Oh, wow. I was just happy. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. I mean, because he was really supportive. And yeah. like, we never once picked up the bass together. Yeah. He he would just sit in his car with me, which I've heard is a thing with Anthony Jackson. Like, apparently, like, Steve Gadd has told me and Vinny has told me, all these people have told me that basically Anthony likes to sit in his car and have yeah. conversations. Okay. That's, that's Anthony Jackson's thing. Right. So he'd sit in, in the car with me and we'd talk about music and we'd listen to records. Yeah. And he'd say, well, it's very interesting how they played that there and not there. And What did you think about that uh, part right there? W- what would you have done? Yeah. And like just asking me, quizzing me yeah. musically. And like that was my, my main study was just yeah. conversations. Sitting with Anthony Jackson in his car. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like pl- we, we never like sat down with, with two basses and played. But it made you think about things differently. I mean, I th- honestly, I think that I was already thinking like that, but yeah. it was r- obviously amazing to have someone of his caliber yeah. to talk about these things with. Yeah. And like, there'd be things I'd say, he'd say, it was just a, a really nice conversation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm sure I learned a ton from yeah. that. And and also what was, was nice was, you know, I, I don't think that I, it was kind of hard to be taken seriously as like a really young looking girl. Like, yeah. you know, people say I still look young now. Like I looked like a 12 year old. Yeah. And so and he would always be like, just just no matter what, just don't give up. And, y- you know, uh, and he's like, as Steve Gadd used to tell me on your worst day, you're still a bad motherfucker. And that's what I have to say to you, Tull, on your worst day. You're still a bad motherfucker. And he used to say that over and over and over again. Um, so he was great. Um, and then he eventually told Wayne Krantz about me, yeah. who was like my favorite 
Like, absolutely my favorite. And I told Anthony, you know, like, I really want to make a record. I've written these songs. Yeah. I think it'll help me get some gigs, you know. It just, I, I've, I've, I've written, like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine songs. Yeah. Do you think that, like, Wayne Krantz would, would you know, he's like, well, just, just ask him. <laughs> and so, and, and I did, and he said yes. To play on the record? Yeah. <laughs> And <laughs> and I said, well, and he's like, well, who do you want to play drums? I'm like, well, I mean, uh, and 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 Keith Carlock was was standing right there, and he's like, well, you know, I'm like, you know, I've always dreamed of like playing with Vinny again ever since he said that, you know, let's play sometime. Yeah. But I I feel like I'm I'm a little bit just I feel nervous right now yeah. and he's in LA and I'm in New York and he's like yeah use Keith I'm like yeah well I love Keith he's great so he said okay well uh, la 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 made the intros and, and they all agreed to, to make this record with me yeah which is really <laughs> awesome um, so I made this r- record uh, <laughs> in a studio in New York yeah and uh, and around about the same time like within a few months I was also uh, the Derek Trucks and O'Teal Burbridge from who were both playing with the Allman Brothers. Yeah, they saw me play at one of your gigs. Yeah, yeah, and invited me to sit in with the Allman Brothers one yeah. night. Right, and uh, it was mainly O'Teal that was like, "I'm just gonna, you know, just one night during the middle of like Elizabeth Reed. I'm just gonna throw you my bass and." And or you can just go and plug in yours, and 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 that'll be that. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm, I've never played on a stage before. I've just played in these like, on these yeah. club gigs, yeah. right? And, uh, and 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 so one night, you know, I guess I was maybe I was like 19, but at this point, yeah. He just walked off the stage. Yeah. And he's like, go. Yeah. You're that. You're in the wings. Yeah, I'm yeah. in the wings. And I go up. And and we started playing Elizabeth Reed, and like I don't even think that everyone in the band knew this was going to happen. Like Greg Allman was like, "Oh, there's <laughs> this this girl on the stage. <laughs> Who is this?" And uh, and next thing I know, I see uh, O'Teal. He's walked into the audience, and he's just like smoking a joint in the audience, just watching me. Yeah, like yeah, <laughs> woo. Yeah. And I start playing this song, and it turns into like this forty-minute version of Elizabeth Reed. At which point, like, I guess after about twenty-five or thirty minutes, the whole band walks off the stage, and it's just me and the bass <laughs> playing solo bass <laughs> for about four minutes. Wow! Because this is what they did in Elizabeth Reed. They let the bass do a solo by oh, itself. Oh, and you didn't know that. I did know that. Yeah, and. Uh, I was ready for it to happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the band, half of the band didn't know that I was going to be doing this. Right. But O'Teal just... Set it yeah. up. Yeah. So then the drums joined back in and I continue soloing over the drums and yeah. that was that. And uh, Great night, though. It was an amazing night. Like, just at the Beacon Theater, it was my first show ever. Like, what? The, how does that happen? How did the crowd react? I got... Uh, yeah, like, they went nuts. <laughs> I couldn't believe they a twelve-year-old played the bass like that. <laughs> so, so here I am. Like, I guess I'm like nineteen, and I have a, a record under my belt, and I've a recording of me with the Elmer Brothers, and the, the, they asked me back to play with them a couple times after that happened. So, mm-hmm. I guess, I guess I did okay. Yeah. Um, 
and then I decided, you know what, I've I've done the you know I, I'd I'd sort of played with these various jazz musicians. There was there was some other people that I'd met in New York. Like there was one musician. Do you know Robert Glasper? No, should I? Yeah. No, I don't know. A- amazing piano player, and like I remember going up to him and asking the same thing, like, "Hey, do, do you mind playing my music with me?" Like, yeah. And and he agreed. You know, which was really nice of him because he'd never heard me play before, and like, uh-huh. him and a guy named Nate Smith played drums with me. And but people and, know you at this point. I the, guess they know me, but they like, I'm just fresh on the scene. Like yeah. some some people were really like, you know, there were there were other musicians that were really hard on me. They didn't want to hear me play, or you know, they just weren't. They didn't want to hear it. this 12 year old yeah. girl play the electric bass in in a jazz club where it's only supposed to be upright bass and. You know what I mean? Like some so people you, gave me a hard time, but there were people like Robert Glasper and Nate Smith and you know and the like that were really really nice to yeah. me and like played my music with me and were very encouraging. So that that's nice. And then I decided I wanted to go back to LA. <laughs> Why? So because I had then discovered, you know what? Like that's the place where like the industry yeah. is, that's where like all the gigs are, like the real gigs, not yeah. like the playing in clubs for a hundred bucks a gig thing like i wanted to do some like some other kinds of gigs and so i I went back to la at a certain point i'm like i really should call Vinny (laughs) now that i'm now that i'm back yeah uh and and i did i said hey um i'm back in in la and i i have this new record and this is the one you did with wayne krantz or the one you did with the one with wayne krantz yeah and I and I had this thing with the Almond Brothers, and uh, is is it cool? Like, could I maybe play you this stuff? And he said, "Cool." So we like met like at a Starbucks or something, and I played him the music, and he's like, "Wow!" Like he was very impressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "Let's let's get together and play." So so I I met up with him, and and we we had a jam. I don't know for maybe. 45 minutes just bass and drum just bass and drums uh-huh. yeah he, I guess he wanted to just see if I could, yeah. could hang keep up yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he was you know very supportive uh-huh. and uh, maybe like a few weeks later I get this call from Vinny saying that Jeff Beck was looking for a bass player for this one gig and Pino couldn't make it oh, yeah uh, it was for Eric Clapton's Crossroads Festival. Sure, the and big, uh, for the benefit festival for the drug rehab. Yeah. Yeah. All the guitar players go. Right. Yeah. So he's like, can you send the management your material, like your, the, the Allman Brothers thing and the, and the album, just what you played to me. Yeah. Send it, send it over. And so I did. And, uh, and I got the call that like, they want to audition me in yeah. England. Jeff does. Yeah, Jeff Beck. Yeah. So I like I qu- quickly learn all of his stuff cuz I had I wasn't really familiar with his music yeah. yet. Uh so I learned like all of his st- I like looked through the set list and saw what he was playing and learned maybe like 25 songs. Yeah. Um and uh, this is one of the fo- funniest stories of my career actually. Yeah. So I'm really hungry as we're about to get on the play- plane. It's me and Vinny. Yeah. And we're going to, to play with Jeff Beck. In London. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think he may have had some other gigs up his sleeve, but- Who, Beck? Yeah. Yeah. But 
he didn't mention them. It yeah. was just the crossroads. So I'm saying, I'm really hungry. I need some, I, I want some pizza or something. He's like, why don't you just eat them on the plane? I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm really hungry now. So, okay, okay. So we went to Wolfgang Puck. Sure. And uh, I ordered a, a chicken pizza, like, yeah. a, I don't know, barbecue chicken. Yeah. And I ate like two or three slices and then we went on the plane. And Vinny starts talking about, you know, he, Vinny's uh, very passionate about politics. Yeah. And, and he was just raving on about something or yeah. other. And I'm just sitting there listening to him. And I'm like, hey, Vinny, I'm, um, I'm feeling kind of sick right now. And he's like, oh, r- oh, really? Well, anyway, so then this happened and da, da, da. And he goes back to his story. Yeah. And I said, excuse me. And I grab a bag and I, I throw up in the bag. And I hold the bag up next to my head and I say, there it is. <laughs> and he's like, there, there what is? There what is? And I said, Oh, I, I just threw up in the bag. I'll, I'll see you in about 10 hours. <laughs> Ran to the bathroom. I'm literally going the whole flight. Oh, my it God. Was, it was terrible. Food poisoning. Yeah, to the point where by the time the plane landed, I basically fell down the stairs of the, the plane, like onto my knees, started throwing up again, and an ambulance took me, and then Vinny was obviously coming with me yeah we bypassed immigration <laughs> and went straight to the hospital it was so funny i get to the hospital jeff beck's manager is there he's like oh well uh, nice to meet you i've already got a drip in my arm at this yeah. point he's like i'll come in the morning and uh, and collect you <laughs> Vinny got checked into a hotel down the street i get picked up at like 7 a.m i'm like pretty did it pass yeah, it, it was. Yeah, but I still felt really weird the yeah, next you're day. Yeah, dehydrated and fucked up. Yeah, so he's like, "Okay, we'll we'll drive now to to Jeff's." <laughs> okay, so it's like three hours in a car, and I'm feeling. S- so I we knock on the Jeff's door, and it's like, "Righto, well, let's go, let's go and play some music." I'm thinking like, "Oh, I thought we we're gonna like just hang out for a second. I could yeah, unwind yeah. from." My- no, it's straight up to the to the roof for this this top floor where he sets all this stuff up and. We'll play, and so we started playing, and I, I, you know, it was fine. It was it was great. It was immediate chemistry. Yeah. And he points to me during the Stevie Wonder song that he does called "Cause of Cause of Ended as Lovers." Oh, okay. And he says solo, and so I start soloing on it, and he was like really into it. So he kept that in his set. So not only did I get hired for the Clapton show, but he kept the solo in the show. And then booked a whole tour that I was then a part of. And I was playing this solo every night. And, you know, that there, there was a video that went around of me playing a solo on that song uh, at Crossroads and then again at Ronnie Scott's club a few months later. And that kind of got a lot of attention online and pretty much became like like another calling card because from that, Herbie Hancock called me to do you know, live at Abbey Road with him and Prince saw that and that's how Prince called me and I started getting a lot of gigs from people seeing that video. Wow. Yeah. But you're confident at this point, obviously. You've got, you know, you've got chops, you've got road experience now. You've yeah, got... I mean, I'd been playing bass for like two years at this point. But I mean, but, you know, in, in the big picture, <laughs> that's... Just... <laughs> Right. Okay, but 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 still, like two it, whole years. But you you whatever it is, you know this this gift that you have enabled you to sort of really kind of uh, do the exploring you wanted to do and gain the confidence that you needed to to show up for these things without being intimidated, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, 
I actually think that the fact that I didn't grow up listening to, uh, you know, I didn't grow up with the Stones right. and with Dylan even or, you know, Jeff Beck. and I didn't grow up listening to these musicians. So when I was meeting them and performing with them, I treated them like my peers. Right. Like, obviously, I was thoroughly impressed with their musicality, but I wasn't looking at them as people that, like, I'd read about in a book or had seen on TV. They were just people I'd be meeting, like, oh, wow, yeah, he's a great guitar player. Right, you had no history with loving their music. Yeah, let me just join in on the fun here. Yeah. And I think that that's what they liked about playing with me too is that I wasn't Affected. treating them any differently. Right. Just a, just a nice musical conversation. Right. Well, that's that's a, that's a very unique thing mm. to to sort of like, that's where it sort of pays off to, because uh, I've had that experience talking to people. Yeah. Like, you know, you talked to Bruce Springsteen about me. Yeah. And he said that the reason he treated me differently was because I pushed him. And one of the reasons was like as much as I like Bruce, I wasn't a Bruce fanatic. Right. Like I knew Bruce. I you know, I, I liked the music, yeah. but I wasn't like, holy shit, Bruce Springsteen. So when I see a lot of these people, mm-hmm. you know, other than Keith Richards, which that that interview is probably unbearable to listen to because I was <laughs> like beside myself. But like I just it was just a person. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a big difference with those guys who and women who who rarely get treated like that by anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, when I did the, I think it was the 25th anniversary Hall of Fame show. We were playing at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. I guess this was in 2009. And I was playing with Jeff Beck and we were backing up yeah. Sting, Buddy Guy, a whole bunch of people. And actually that was the first time I met Bruce Springsteen as he came up to me afterwards and was really nice to me. And there was this huge after party that happened after the show. And yeah. I remember two of my good friends came with me to this party. I had one on each arm. We were like, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah we just played Medicine Square Garden, blah, blah, blah. And we're going up the stairs, and this guy comes up to me like, hey, yeah, I saw you play uh, in L.A. That was a great show. I'm like, yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, and I saw you play tonight again. Fantastic, fantastic. I was like, cool, thanks. Uh, I'm tall. What, what's your name? Mick. And he walks away. And my friends just look at me like, do you, do you know who that is, Tal? No? Mick Jagger, you know, like the singer for the Rolling Stones. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Come on. This I have so many of these stories. Like, I just didn't know. <laughs> I wasn't crazy. I didn't grow up with that music. No, I know, but you, what do you, you must be so, like, you, it just, you're so focused or something. I guess. Did you ever play with Mick? Yeah. I, I played with him on SNL maybe a couple years later, and it was great. And also, I did like one of my favorite recording sessions ever with him, which was Ringo Starr on drums, Yeah, Jim Keltner also on drums, Dr. John on piano, and Mick Jagger playing harmonica and singing. And... And we all like would sat in the circle, and like Bill Withers showed up, and we started writing a song together. And then like me and Mick wrote another song. Like it was, it was just really. What album's this stuff on? It, I don't even think it's released. It was for Joe Walsh. Oh, yeah, for Joe Walsh. Yeah, it was for Joe Walsh, and was he didn't it? even put it out. I wonder if he will. When... Was he there? Yeah, he was there. Sorry, I'm like there was more people there too. It was just so many, but it was. I think it was maybe the first time Mick and Ringo had 
done, I think they were saying something about maybe it was the first time or whatever. I was like, oh my God. But so, but you know that now, but then that now, you but were still just, it was just a bunch of dudes that were playing, but you knew Mick yeah. at that point. Yeah, I knew Mick at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I guess like a couple of questions about this, because like you're know, playing with these guys, when you play with somebody like specifically, instead of asking you, you know, what's it like to play with them? <laughs> which, <laughs> the most dreaded question. <laughs> right. But I mean, but when you talk in terms of like a musical conversation, so if we frame it differently, yeah. as opposed to you, you know, telling me what these, these artists are like, you know, what was the experience for you and how was it different when you play with somebody like um, when you move from Jeff Beck to Herbie's band, uh, what, you know, what, wh how does the conversation change? Hmm. How does the conversation change? Because if you're looking at it that way, and then when you like play with Bob Weir or you play with, um, with Dr. John, who like that crew of people, you know, historically for somebody who's a freak for that kind of music would just like blow their mind. But you, you know, seeing you have this, uh, this purity due to your um, I don't know it's not really ignorance but just sort of your myopia <laughs> about your own work you know that your single mindedness and you, you know your, your kind of detachment from it, that you're coming to it with a sort of uh, an open mind that other people wouldn't have you know going into knowing all of Dr. John's shit mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so like when you play with Herbie and you're having an experience like you had like that moment where Beck says you know, do the solo and you lay it out and he integrates it. Mm -hmm. So he's got to be a different type of artist in terms of how he thinks and approaches music than someone like Herbie Hancock. You know, what is the difference for you as a bass player? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that aesthetically I could necessarily point out the differences. I just know that like when you have conversations with people with that much experience, yeah. you're bound to pick up and integrate some of those nuances yeah. into your own playing. Right. In terms of my role as a bass player with them, that does vary according to what I think they want and what they're throwing at me. Yeah. You know, I mean... So it's instinctual, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It is like a conversation. Yeah. It's just, you just got to listen. And then there's fits and starts. Like, there are times where, you, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that you're going to be hitting bad notes, but where the conversation doesn't quite sync up until it does? Or I guess as a bass player, you have a little more... I, th I suppose if, if, if your role is to be a sideman, mm -hmm. essentially, like I'm, I'm there to hopefully make them sound good. And so if anybody, like if, if Jeff would make a mistake, for instance... You know, Jeff is like the singer. They always say, follow the singer. So if Jeff goes somewhere else, we just have to go follow him and go. It's not like we're fighting for, right. you know, spotlight or anything right. like that. We're all just sort of trying to like lift him up. And, right. And in, in times, then he'll also feature us. And then right. he's doing that for us. Right. So I guess, you know, in a perfect world, that would happen in any band too. Right. But, you know, the, the these particular ensembles that I've been a part of, um, there is a lot of improvisation. Yeah. You know, and when you love that. I love it. Yeah. 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 And when you play with, um, with somebody like Bob Weir, mm -hmm. 
the type of improvisation that you're going to do with Beck as opposed to Herbie and then as opposed to sort of the kind of like, you know, country rock, you know, slash psychedelic noodling that 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 we're kind of invented. Mm hmm. You know what's what's the the vibe difference when you play with somebody like Bob? I think that there is in in each style of music a a vocabulary that consists mainly of don'ts more than do's. Yeah, and so you just adhere to that. Right. Yeah. Right. So like when you're playing uh, some sort of a, you know Saint Stephen or something, <laughs> or one of Bob's songs, whatever right. he's up to. You don't necessarily do a weather report style <laughs> bass playing. <laughs> you kind of roll along. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right? I mean, he's also like a really open musician that loves hearing different approaches to his music. And he's, I mean, the first time I played with him. With Bob. Yeah, with Bob. Yeah. Was I, I just went to go and watch one of his shows. And yeah. I was just sitting in the audience. And all of a sudden, the security guy points to me and says, "Excuse me, ma'am, get up, get out of your seat." And I, uh, wait, I didn't, I didn't do any drugs. I, yeah. I didn't take any photos. What, yeah. what did I do? Uh, yeah. He said, "Come with me," and he like he makes me follow him all the way to the stage. Yeah. He's like, "Do you know all along the Watchtower?" I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "You're on in three minutes." I'm like, okay. <laughs> and like, you know, Bob's manager told me later. He's like, you know. I'm so glad you did that because some musicians, when when Bob does that, they'll 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 say no because they then don't feel prepared because they're put on the spot. And because you did that, I he told me how much that he just loves you that you you just went along. <laughs> and like and then he's asked me back since like he he loves being off the cuff. Yeah, you know, keeps it keeps it live, keeps, keeps it, it fresh. You know, right, 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 keeps you in the present. Yeah, but I mean, I suppose. The world of improvisation is is very different to if I go and get called to do a session, like whether it, it was the sessions with Prince or it's like any other kind of project that, you know, sometimes you just have to play very simple and play for the song. Right. You know? Right. So in the studio, it's a, a whole other whole And other And what thing. was that like with Prince? Amazing. Yeah. That was actually my first time recording to tape. Uh-huh. And I was surprised with how To tape or to you mean tape tape, tape like tape. analog. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I was surprised at how fast he works. Uh-huh. Like he likes to just like, okay, lay it down, like here we go, take one, that's it. Okay. You you go to punch. Ah, uh, you sure about that? Listen again. Are you sure you want to punch? Okay. Okay, fine. You get Let's one punch. chance. One chance. When you punch in. Yeah. Like if if there's if you want to overdub like, Yeah. Right. Replace. Replace right. A, right. Yeah, a, yeah. a segment that yeah. So, and I remember him just like, okay, you ready? We're punching right now. That was it. Can I have another? No. <laughs> okay. Because it's on tape. Yeah, because it's on tape. But I mean, you can punch multiple times on tape. I mean, it does wear it out every time you, but I think it was more about the mindset of like, let's do this and move forward. And let's not just like micro focus like on all of these. And little and I would imagine doing it on tape, you know, it does make it a little more precious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there's other musicians that do that and don't do that on tape. It's just, it. I mean, y you really need to have a discipline to do that now because you, you can do anything now. You can edit the shit out of anything. Right. So it's harder to make a um, a real, authentic, you know, record that's played live. Like, that doesn't happen that much anymore. It's yeah. A band goes into a studio and, and just cuts a record, which is actually how I did my record 
this current record that's about to be released. You did played it live. Yeah. And um, how was this relationship? Because I know you opened for the Who with some of this new material, mm-hmm. and that you know you never played with Pete, you know, on any of his stuff, but he likes you. Yeah. Townsend. Well, he I played on one show which was a tribute to him, mm-hmm. and he saw me perform, and like after the show, he said a couple really nice things to me in yeah. passing. That was my only experience meeting him. But he gave you that gig. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much was him or the management because right. it was like it was a really interesting turn of events where like a month before they went on the tour, I had finished my record and I wanted to send it to him to hear what like hear if he liked the music because it was a very different direction to what anybody had known me as. Yeah. Like people identify me as a bass player. Yeah. I was played with Jeff or whoever else, not as a singer-songwriter. Right. And so I wanted to send it to someone that I really respect. And so I sent it to Pete and said, let me know what you think. And, you know, kind of half joking, like, and if you ever need someone to open for you guys, like, I'd, l- I'd love to accept the challenge. And he wrote back pretty quickly just saying, like, wow, I love this music. This is great. And, you know, I'll send it on to the management and see what they think in terms of opening for for any of our shows and he and he wrote some really like detailed responses to my songs like he yeah. gave me real feedback uh-huh. which is really nice of him yeah and then i got a phone call from his management saying you know it's your lucky day because the band that we were going to use for the first leg of the tour can't make it because of some immigration issues so would you like to do the tour yeah and that was how that yeah came. and what's your relationship with jackson brown so I met Jackson that same night that I met Mick Jagger. That At the funny, 25th anniversary thing? Yeah, yeah. So Jackson and Bonnie Raitt came up to me after the show. And I'd actually heard of Jackson because my dad said he liked his music, but yeah. I hadn't heard his music yet. Right. And they were both just really nice. Like, yeah. And uh, I said, oh, it, you know, uh, my dad loves your music. And by the way, like, uh, I'm just starting to write songs with lyrics and... Yeah, you know, we're like, where do you live? Da da da. We figured out we both live in LA, and he said, "Well, we'll love to hear your music sometime." And yeah, so like, when I came back to LA, I I took him up on his offer and I played him some music, uh, and after like some show that he was at, like just in my car, I played him some music, and he gave me some advice. And then I said, "I'm gonna go into the studio with these people," and oh, well, let me know how that goes. Okay, cool. And so I did that and um, play him the music and, hey, what do you think of this song? Oh, I really like that one. Like, uh, you know, the the chorus to me says this. Well, do, do you think that this lyric means this? Da, 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 da. And we do that kind of same talk that I did with Anthony Jackson, but yeah. about songwriting. And not in the car. <laughs> Sometimes in the car. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and so I think just he also became like, sort of like a mentor or he doesn't yeah. like me to use the term mentor because yeah. he's like no you're a peer you know you're a friend like you help me too like I ask you about things and it's fine you know yeah. like it's not mentor you know whatever it's just a term but like he's really given me like a lot of advice and support um, and he does that uh, that's what's so amazing about him like he does he did that with Blake Mills he did that with a band called Doors I don't know if you know them yeah um, uh, uh, quite a few musicians like he'll give guitars to and yeah. 
he's such a generous guy. And he's got so, that studio. We played it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's just showed support throughout the making of this whole album. I, I just find it sort of uh, impressive and amazing, at least by how you talk about these people, that it seems that most, if not all, of these men were appropriate with you. Yeah. And that's a that's a testament to your talent and to your person and to them. Like, you know, it's not a story you hear usually. You know, usually right. there's got to be a few stories where it's sort of like, oh, that guy. Yeah. But not too many. Huh? Maybe it's because I looked like I was 12, just a little bit too young. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you really find out who a man is, I think. <laughs> I guess they're all pretty good dudes. <laughs> So the new record is you stepping to the front in a real way. Like, did you send me the whole record? Or did I just get part of it. I sent you ten songs. Ten songs, the right? Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. Ten songs, reasonably length record. Yeah, yeah. You didn't do you know nineteen songs. No. Yeah, and they're all you know they all sound like you, but a lot of them are different in tone. Like, there's some real fucking rockers. Like, the the opening song is like, you know, it's big. It's like rock music. And then there's some jazzier ones and some nice vocal stuff, and your voice is beautiful. And, you know, it, some of it seems very personal to me, and I hope you're okay. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. <laughs> well, no, just like relationship stuff. Wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't that be like, funny if, like, I put the record on and I just start getting all these phone calls? Like, Tal, are you, are you okay? okay? Do you want me to bring you some chicken soup? No, it didn't, it didn't. Want to take it a walk on it, the beach? It wasn't like that, but you're very you're sort of you know, self-reflective and, and, you know, frustration in what seemed like relationships and stuff mm -hmm. is all in there. Yeah. But, you know, how did you pick the band for this record? I did go into the studio with several ensembles. Yeah. And... One night, I went to go have sushi with Benmont. Tench. Benmont Tench, yeah. yeah. And, I've talked uh, to him. He's a great guy. And he invited Jeremy Stacy. Uh-huh. And then Jeremy invited his brother, Paul Stacy. And I'd met Jeremy Stacy at the 2007 Crossroads Festival that I played with. Who Jeff does he Beck. play with? He plays with Cheryl Crow, oh. um, Noel Gallagher. I mean, oh, he kind of plays with everyone. Studio guy. And live. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so we're having, uh, sushi. Yeah. And afterwards I say, Hey, do you guys, cause Ben Mon had already heard my music and he'd also been another person that was very supportive. I said, do you guys want to go sit in my car and listen to some music? Yeah. I'm taking on I the tradition it. of, of yeah. Anthony Jackson. And so I played them my music and they're like, Oh, this is great. You know, like. I'm like, well, maybe we could go into the studio sometime. It'd be really great. I, I just met this guy named Blake Mills, who's an amazing guitarist, and they hadn't heard of him yet. And I said, like, just trust me, he's he's really great. Yeah. Because Blake had been coming over to my house like pretty regularly, just like jamming, you know, with me. And we'd also be going to like Benmont's house almost weekly at one point, like me and Dawes. And Blake, and who, whoever else was in town, yeah. And we just like Jackson, and we'd all play each other like what we were working on, uh -huh. like, oh, what do you think of this song? And, we'd, and then we would jam on some like Dylan songs or whatever. Yeah, that was happening like weekly. So anyway, so I said, Let, let's go in the studio. And so I, I just said, let's just do one day, two songs, try this out. And uh, Paul, as Paul, as a co-producer with me and Jeremy playing drums and Blake playing guitar. And I figured like everything else can just like sort of be an overdub or whatever. Yeah. So we had, we went in and cut Corner Painter, which is the first song on the record. Yeah. And another song 
uh, which didn't end up being on the record. And I knew right then and there that that was the song that was going to be the linchpin for the rest of the record. And I could now go home and write other songs with that sound in mind. And so that's exactly what I did. I wrote a bunch of songs, and then I called the same musicians back. As well, uh, I also called uh, Zach Ray, who I coincidentally also met another time a few months later when I was at Sushi again with Ben Mont. And Zach Ray was at a table next to us. Um, and he's just, he recognized Ben Mon and it's like, hello, hello. hello. I, and I met him and I, I sort of thought like, I bet you that guy's a good musician. Same sushi place? Same sushi place. I, I called Zach up. I said, can I come by and play some songs with you? Yeah. And uh, I loved his playing. So I brought him into the ensemble too. And that was the band along with Ben Mont for the whole record. Wow. It's a good bunch. Amazing. Yeah. I thought, I thought the record was great. Oh, thanks. Now you're like front and center and just like killing it thank you yeah i i actually when i picked up that guitar for the first time and cried and wrote a song and strummed every chord in history yeah yeah all in one <laughs> all in one <laughs> <laughs> i i started writing songs like that's what i i actually began doing yeah and then when I moved to America... Yeah, you had to play with Jeff Beck and Herbie Hancock. Well, no, it wasn't had to. It was before those gigs. Yeah. I started just focusing on being an instrumentalist. Right. So... You're back was, in, to this. In a sense, I was going back to my roots. Yeah, to what you wanted to do to begin with. Yeah. But with all this experience under yeah. my belt. And, and amazing know? support. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. All right, you want to play something? I, I if we so. can, if we can hook it up, yeah. we'll do it. But that's that's the end of the conversation part. Oh, I was just getting started. Stop it. <laughs> There's a little buzz, but I'm sure with the beauty of the music, it will all go away. Is it easy to tell with the bleed in the room? What? Like if the bass is too loud or too soft? You're talking to me like I'm an engineer and I'm just looking at a, a, a wavy thing. <laughs> the wavy thing looks good. It's not peeking out. All right. This song's called Haunted Love. Self-sufficiency Man an island of a man Keep away and run away now Hand in hand This unexpected alchemy Till your love began to live 
that used to be invisible, illuminated by a spark. You guard the flame and tenderly hold back the dark. But no, you didn't know about the ghosts left inside of me. Did you, babe? Feeling so alone in the midst of this uncertainty. I can't help but feel guilty when you lie your head upon my chest. You feel the beating. Through the night.
Double that buzz. That's so great. Only the buzz remains. Love remains. Oh, yeah. Love remains. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. That was amazing. Right? The amazing Tall Wilkenfeld. Um, her new album, Love Remains, is available now wherever you get your music. And uh, now, I, if you're still here, I want to uh, premiere for you. This is the first time it's being heard outside of anyone who saw the movie in uh, South by Southwest. This is uh, the song from the Lynn Shelton film, Sort of Trust. It runs under the credits. It's uh, called New Boots. It's written by me and Tal Wilkenfeld, and it's uh, produced by Tal Wilkenfeld, and it features Tal, Zach Ray, Tamir Barzilay, and Jimmy Z. Zavala, and uh, Doyle Bramhall, also on guitar. So uh, here's New Boots.
Huh? Pretty good, right? I'm back for a second just to say, Boomer lives!